the Women in Jazz Media podcast series, On the Bookcase, with music from Hannah Horton. I'm hugely excited to have a very special guest for our very first podcast, Dr. Tammy L. Canodor, a huge hero of mine. Um, her work has, oh, it's vast. Her scholarship and teaching has been mainly in um, areas of, um, kind of African-American music, jazz, gender and popular music. She served um, as a scholar in the residence of the Women in Jazz Initiative at the American Jazz Museum. She's worked closely with many different organisations such as the Kennedy Centre's uh, Mary Lou Williams Women in Jazz Festival, Jazz at the Lincoln Centre. Her work has appeared in so many different publications. Um, American Studies, Music Quarterly, Black Music Research Journal, so many. And she is, of course, the author of um, an incredible book, a biography called Soul on Soul, The Life and Music of Mary Lou Williams. I'm very excited to welcome to our Women in Jazz Media bookcase first podcast, Dr. Tammy Canodal. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here with you. I have so many questions for you um, that will take us all over the place, I'm sure. Um, you've written this incredible book, among many other things, but this incredible book um, about Mary Lou Williams, Soul on Soul, which um, I've read it many times, actually. I've, I've been through it quite a few times because wow. it's so it's so inspirational on many levels, uh, not just your role as the writer, but obviously the subject matter of her and and not it's not just a biography you know talking about all those different issues uh, surround that so I'm going to start off with an obvious one um which is what started you yeah, what brought you to Mary Lou Williams of, of all the kind of incredible um women out there what was your journey to decide to write a book about her well I think it really started with my own experimentation and exploration as a pianist um you know I I trained for many years as a you know in classical music and and at one point in time thought about being a concert pianist but realized you know very small hands I didn't have the stomach for it um and you know so I shifted kind of what I wanted to do as a music profession but continued to play you know Mm -hmm. and and gradually just moved away from classical music and began to experiment with jazz when I was in graduate school at the Ohio State University and and discovered Mary Lou by listening. You know, I just really immersed myself in a lot of listening, not just for playing, but but also because jazz in so many ways spoke to me in a way that few musics had really spoken to me. It's like I had like an awakening as a spiritual and kind of um, artistic awakening through jazz, right? And, And so I just, I discovered her doing my listening and was just profoundly confused. Confused? And I used those words deliberately profoundly confused that I had never heard people talk about her Uh, and 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 had never heard her name you know and and when you think about her within the genealogy of pianist mm. and what she brought to that instrument right and what she did as a performer I just couldn't understand it right you know and this was in the early 90s so it was right at the time where you know the scholarship that was focusing on women in jazz was really beginning to crank up again, you know, Sally Claxon, Linda Dow, uh, Sherry Tucker, you know, and so um, I set about this journey and I'm going to be very uh, quick. I I won't let my Baptist sensibilities get the better of me. (laughs) Don't hold back, say whatever Uh, you wish. (laughs) But, you know, I, I, it's, I often say, you know, that it was, it was kind of uh, divine, right? Mm. Because I was having this epiphany and around the same time, um, I was, I was transitioning into my candidacy for PhD. Right. Right. And I'm, so I'm discovering her, I'm coming into a point where I'm trying to figure out what I'm writing my dissertation on and father Peter O'Brien, who was Mary Lou Williams's manager and spiritual confidant had decided to give everything to the Institute of Jazz Studies. So like all of these things are happening and they're like the perfect storm, right? Yeah. 
And and so I'm like, well, I I want to write on Mary Lou Williams. And I just I made a complete shift because my master's thesis had been on another African-American composer, William Grant Steele, and his opera Troubled Island. And so, you know, there was this notion I was going to continue kind of writing on black concert music, black mm. concert composer. But Mary Lou spoke to me. She mm. just spoke to me in so many ways. And, you know, I started on this journey. I wrote my dissertation on her religious works. I went to Rutgers and and actually found the pieces of the masses you know where at that time most people were just kind of writing a little bit about the masses like they existed but you know um no it's the analysis mm-hmm. yeah and um so but then early 2000s um right after i read um linda dow's book um uh, morning glory mm. i was like oh okay i really like this book but i was like the music is missing in this book, right? You know, I was like, Linda unpacked Mary Lou's life significantly. And, um, but I was like, there has to be another part of this conversation. And so, you know, there's many people who oftentimes will compare our books or uh, critique our books in different ways. But Mm. my book was always looked upon as being a dialogue with her in dialogue. And so as a person who is a musician and a musicologist, my role was to insert into that narrative of the personal, right? A real discussion of the spaces she had been in um, and looking and utilizing the lens of of being a black woman in America, right? And reading some of these things, but also really trying to provide the reader with a clear sense of where she was a pioneer in progressing jazz, not just somebody who was on the sidelines, you know, um, but someone who was in these important spaces, in these moments, and oftentimes uh, leading the way for the men who we credit with these, you know, these, these evolutionary stages of jazz. So, um, so Mary Lou became a, a, a important part of my life. She still is, you know, she's still embedded. So every time I think I'm done with writing on her, something else comes well, around. Well, I noticed, um, because the edition I've got here, you um, put a new, uh, there's a new section at the beginning. And I think you mentioned um, how um, you still keep learning. There's still new things, even though you think you finished, actually, <laughs> there's so much more that you're still still learning. And in fact, yeah. that's, that's one question I wanted to ask you, which, uh, and I know many writers, but an author, that that commitment, that level of research, um, you kind of, the, the amount of time it, it must take to really embed yourself in Mary Lou's life yeah. was that hard and I you know and and, and again I've, I've seen that you wrote and um, you struggled with your in your uh, where you're thanking uh, the many people that supported you on your journey you put that you struggled with your own insecurities mm-hmm. and you put hard work prayer and faith yeah so yeah. what that that journey to actually writing a book and really delving into the life of such an incredible woman how how was that <laughs> I know that's kind of a huge question but well you know you you've gotta you've gotta always I think measure your positionality to something like I never wanted my own analysis or my own experience to overshadow what was her experience right mm-hmm. um but I wanted to know the life that Mary Lou lived. So one of the things that I tried to do when I first started doing this research, right? um, You know, because we have to think, my research started around 93, 94. Mm -hmm. And the book was not finished until 2004. Yeah. Um, And so in all of that time, what I was doing was shifting. So one of the things that I did was I was raised Baptist, Southern Baptist, Southern Virginia. And I really didn't know a lot about Catholicism, right? Mm -hmm. Um, There was one Catholic church in my hometown. Um, I had a best friend that was the only black family, part of the only black family that attended that black, that Catholic (laughs) church. And she ended up being a historian in black history. 
Wow. So yeah. So like again, divine stuff. So yeah. like I went to church. I went to church with her. I was like, I really have to know, you know, because we learn, we learn about the Catholic Church in music history and musicology. You learn about the creation of the mass. Mm. But I really wanted to understand that Vatican II thing. Like, like how did you know? I I've studied Palestrina. I've studied mm. Bayi. I've studied these, you know, European masters of the mass, right? Yeah. You know. But I was like, what does this mean? Catholicism mean in America? And yeah. what does it need mean in the black, you know, community, right? Yeah. So I attended church with her. And, and, you know, I really, and I attended and was quiet and observant, not writing, but kept going back with her because I really wanted to understand what was the environment Mary Lou was, was operating in and what was she envisioning for her music right mm. so that I could better understand the letters yeah that were, you know and so and I tried to interview as many of the musicians who worked with her who were still living like I I sought them um I had the 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 opportunity of being one of the last people to interview John Williams, mm -hmm. her first husband, right, um, who was living in Columbus when at, at the time that I was a grad student. And wow. so like, you yeah. know, so one of the, the individuals on my um, my committee introduced me to John Williams and I spent a great deal of time with him. And I mean, like saturated time where I really got to know him as much as I got to know her. And so, you know, I was, I was spending all of this time creating relationships. Like I didn't go into people's homes and set the recorder down, right? I, I knew enough to know you have to have relationships with people so that they trust you. Yeah enough to tell you the things you need to know beyond the surface. So like, for instance, Brother Mario, who I talk about in the book, who was a significant, you know, friend and spiritual confidant of um, Mary Lou. I remember the first time I went to see him in New Jersey and I stayed at, you know, I sat there at his house for at least four or five hours, right? Mm. And I'm, I'm listening to him, right? And, and while I'm talking to him and at the end of that trip, you know, he, he, he stands up, I'm about to, you know, go. And he's like, hold up, I have something for you. And he comes back with this bag. And he said, I've been waiting for the right person. Mm. And I feel like you're the right person. Wow. And he gave me all the letters that had, he and Mary Lou had written to each other over the, and I was like, just emotionally. Blown away, I bet. Cause I was like, this is, these are your memories. I can't take your memories. He was like, but you need them to write. And so, you know, many of them have been destroyed, you know, by water and whatever. And so we try, I, the librarian here at Miami worked with me, you know, I made copies. I tried to preserve some of them, but I gave them back to him, mm -hmm. but that's just emblematic of, of the kind of work that I was doing. Like I wasn't, one of these people who like, oh, I've got to write this book for my tenure. Yeah. Like I, I had done enough front work to get the tenure. But what I wanted to make sure was that I treated her story with care. Mm. And, and that I could as much as possible speak to the people who knew her best. Yeah, like, and, and that's a testament, isn't it, to you though. I mean, you're talking about building up those relationships and people trusting you. Not everyone can do that. Uh, you know, okay. and uh, at all. So the fact that you were able to um, show that you could be trusted, and that the the book was coming from the right place. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you know, you want to honor. Mm. Is, is you have to ask yourself. You know, and I talk to young writers all the time. You know, people will ask me. Uh, you know, and there are many things that are not in that book that yeah, of I course. said that people <laughs> told me, and I was like this does not benefit the story. Yeah. You know, you, so you have to ask yourself, what is the story you're trying to leave the reader with, you know, um, or what is the impression that you want to give the reader? Um, and I'm also very careful understanding that, you know, when you are a woman mm -hmm. or you are a person of color um, and, and you deal with 
the the systemic institutions of racism and sexism mm. and 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 though your way of dealing means that you know your personal life or the choices you make may from within the 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 framework of the mainstream right of 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 the eurocentric construct yeah. of social engagement might not be acceptable that you get pathologized, right? Yeah. So you get read through those things and you don't get read through your art. And so one of the things I wanted to do was to try as much as I could intellectually and personally try to guard Mary Lou from having to deal with this, the fate that happened to um, Billie Holiday mm. or to Dinah Washington, mm. right? Or even what we see with contemporary figures like Whitney Houston. Mm. Like, you know, like those women, if you look at their stories, right? Or Janis Joplin, yeah. right? Mm. You, they became pathologized in terms of what they did to cope, right? With whatever uh, psychological, physical, spiritual wounds mm. that life and racism and sexism brought to them, right? Um, and so th those may not have been ways to cope that you might have chosen, but those were the ways that they did. And so what happens is the story that is discussed in reference to them is always about the brokenness, right? The, the yeah. addiction or, or the abuse that they experience. It's not about the artistry. Yeah, yeah. So then we have to work very hard to reclaim the artistry. We're still trying to do that with, with <laughs> Billie Holiday, right? Yeah. We're still trying to do that with Janis Joplin. And, and I fear we will have to do that continually with Whitney Houston. And I say that because I teach, I teach these women. Mm -hmm. and, and with each generation, each class that comes in, right? What I realize is that the further we get away from those years and, and from people having heard Whitney Houston in their lifetime, like me, mm -hmm. who saw her live, you know, that, that she becomes her, her, her artistry be, is minimized over the salaciousness, right? And so, so then you got to introduce them again to who she was as a musician. Was that clear for you from the start? Or was that something that came about through your research, you know, your messaging of, you know, these are the points I have to make, this is important uh, as far as messaging is concerned? Is that something that was clear to you right from the beginning? Or did that develop more throughout your research? It developed more out of my research. Mm -hmm. um, and I think because, you know, my because I was so focused initially on the religious compositions, right? Yeah. And really putting the religious compositions back together, you know, like those masses were not, even when I found them in the collection, you know, there were just pieces all over the place. So it was about really trying to figure out, you know, um, what went together, you know, what was performed when, um, because she was also rescoring these masses as she was going into certain communities. Um, and, and so, you know, I was, I was more, I was more uh, composition centric, right? I was more focused on repertoire, re repertory centric, I think is a better word to say, mm -hmm. than I was about the life at first, right? And so out of the composition, I started thinking about her spirituality. And, and, and that was my primary focus until I was like, okay, there has to be a deeper dialogue. And so mm -hmm. as I moved into that reading, you know, of, of these other works that came out, then I saw, okay, there's a need for this kind of nuanced reading, more expansive reading, um, you know, and, but also um, doing it with a certain of measure because I couldn't put a 21st century analysis on something that was happening in the 20th century. I get this question all the time from mm -hmm. young people like, well, why did she reject the terminology feminist? I really have a problem with that. Mm -hmm. And I said, because black women did not see what they were doing as feminism. They saw it as survival. Yeah. You cannot take, you know, a, a 21st century uh, perspective 
that is based in the agency that you have because yeah. of what your foremothers did and use that to critique what your foremothers did or did not do. That's not fair. Yeah. It's, yeah. It, and it's, and it doesn't, it, 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 it benefits who? I was like, we don't have to call, we don't have to, to judge Mary Lou for, for not saying she was a feminist when everything that she did embodied what feminism, black feminism, womanism, all of that embodied, right? Yeah. Yeah. Multiple examples. She didn't need to, she didn't need to wear a title because she was embodying those principles. Yeah. And how I was, I was watching um, some seminars that you did um, and you, ta- you talked about uh, Billie Holiday actually and uh, Nina Simone. Um, and there was one that you um, did that was um, Black Women, The Message Song and The Mediation of Black Anger. Yeah. And it, it made me think, how um, do you find it frustrating that the the issues, the barriers, the messaging, if you like, I don't really like that word messaging, but of artists such as Nina Simone um, and looking at um, social and, and racial change. Mm-hmm. How frustrating is it for you? And it's a genuine question that that is still relevant now. Yeah, because I think when we sometimes we look back and as you say about kind of different times, we look back at some of these incredible women uh, and I know, I have to say, most of my you know, most of my idols are incredible, amazing, fierce Black women, and they still are. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also saddens me that when I listen to Strange Fruit, as an, as an example, that song is still relevant today, which um, I don't even have the words to explain what that makes me feel, but how, do, how, do, how frustrating do you find it that you know, Nina Simone, as an example, is still, the messaging is still relevant. Those issues are still relevant. You know, it, it's, it's, it's a tiring, it's a weariness that I feel. Um, but there is also um, I think there's also for me a sense of hope. Um, so, you know, I, what I've come to understand, especially in, I would say, the last um, seven or eight years, and in, in particular in looking at everything that's happening around me. So let me just say this. So I'm in the process of writing a book that looks at Black women's roles in um, crafting protest music and protest culture, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And it is not restricted by genre. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I I started to to ask the question of, you know, who is speaking to liberation? Um, You know, in terms of these historical moments that we frame around around the civil rights movement, you know, and I started looking at Odetta and mm-hmm. I started looking at Nina and mm-hmm. of course, and, and Mary Lou mm-hmm. and Alice Coltrane and Abby mm-hmm. Lincoln um, and, and concert artists like um, Margaret Bonds, right? Mm-hmm. But I had to stop it sometime at <laughs> one point, Fiona. Yeah. Like it was too much for me. Um, Sandra Bland and Tamir Rice and mm-hmm. Trayvon Martin and... Philando Castile. And, you know, I was reading all of these civil rights histories uh, and all of these newspaper accounts, because that's the kind of scholar that I am. Even if I don't use it, I'm trying to have a deeper understanding. So I'm reading all this stuff about 1963, 1964, and you have this person in a car that is stopped by the police. And then this altercation ends with this person being shot in the head this unarmed person right so you i'm seeing these things i'm reading these things from the historical past but i'm seeing them also happening in real time on television right so it did something to i like i literally had to say i i couldn't write for Mm -hmm. a year i was like this project has to go too much yeah um and so in the meantime i was asked if I would do a lecture performance, a lecture kind of recital performance for the Underground Railroad Museum here in Cincinnati. 
And I decided to do a program that became known as She Sang Freedom. And what I, I picked were these female voices mm -hmm. that I felt spoke to freedom and utilize music. And I started with Harriet Tubman, mm -hmm. you know, and went through Billie Holiday and uh, went into the church and talked about Fannie Lou Hamer and, you know, did Nina Simone and, mm -hmm. and so forth and so on. And it was healing. Mm -hmm. And then, and, and, and so the answer to my question is on one part, yes, it is weary, mm -hmm. but, but the music that these women produced, right, has has a legacy of being able to help us mediate our pain, um, but but also to help remind us that freedom is a constant struggle. Mm -hmm. It is a constant struggle, and so maybe it is not the struggle that we see or we have seen over the last you know past years in terms of the accelerated violence. Yeah. that has yeah. been enacted upon you know black people mm -hmm. in these scenarios but but it has been a constant struggle um and that's what we forgot that's what makes me weary is that we didn't learn the we did not learn the lessons from the previous generation especially my generation you know i was born a year and five months and 26 days after the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Right. So I was born in 1969. Mm. And I came of age when, when apartheid was being challenged. I marched in anti-apartheid rallies in college, you know. Uh, I was part of a conversation of access and and equity at the Ohio State University and some of the racial tensions that happened there. And yet, yet my generation still did not heed the warnings of the previous generation or feel like it was necessary to continue what our foremothers and forefathers did. We shouldn't be talking about LGBTQ um, equity anymore mm -hmm. because of what happened in the 60, late mm -hmm. 60s and 70s. Mm -hmm. We still should not be talking about overt policing and police brutality. Mm -hmm. Like some of these things we should never have been revisiting. We should have never had to revisit the sexism, the mm -hmm. harassment, the sexual assault of women. And, you know, why are we repeating history? Yeah. And that is what angers me and makes me more tired is that did we just did we just situate ourselves in our nice homes and our good jobs and our our luxury cars and our our sense of access because we made it mm -hmm. and forgot you know all of these things that maybe we skirted or avoided. I don't know what happened. And that's the question I ask myself now. Yeah. So when I hear Simone, I'm like, thank God for Simone. Because Simone reminds us, you know, Billie Holiday reminds us. Roberta Flack singing Trying Times mm. reminds us, right? Aretha singing <laughs> A Change Is Gonna Come reminds us mm. to not let go or lose hope. And I think, yeah, I mean, two things to pick up on that, because I think... Firstly, it, don't you find that it's music throughout history that actually um, inspires us to do something about those issues uh, or about any issues? And, you know, and if I use the song Respect as a prime example, I don't know any woman at all who cannot put that on and not be inspired. Whatever is going on in your life, whatever is affecting you, you stick on that song and it literally gives you power. I mean, within seconds, you, 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 know, you need like a bar, a couple of bars and, and you're there. That's a hugely powerful thing, music. Um, you know, and, and, and I think sometimes we forget, not you and I, for example, but I think people forget the power of music as a tool to make change, you know, and someone like Nina Simone, she knew that. And, and the legacy artists, 
and this is why I think it's important to continually revisit and and uh, and renew those legacy artists for the generation that don't know who they are because the power that they brought the inspiration they brought and ultimately the change some of which they brought but lots of which still needs to happen actually comes from their music exactly and that's why i'm writing this book mm. i mean and, which is not a book it's a trilogy now because okay. what i figured out is you if you're really going to write about you know, how how women have used music because mm. think about it we've had no power mm. we've we've not had any power and no matter what liberation movement you're talking about outside of the feminist movement mm. women's voices have always been muted or we've been yeah. made invisible yeah. right yeah. and so what has been the way in which we have spoken ourselves into these liberation narratives mm -hmm. right into these public ideologies of what it means to have access and agency and be free right mm -hmm. we have sung our way into those <laughs> yeah right yeah. yeah so i mean like all I, and every marginalized community has done this right so yeah. i talked to my students about aunt molly jackson mm. you know who's singing from the mines of kentucky right and 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 singing these protest songs i talk about you know a uh, fanny lou hamer who's a sharecropper mm. i talk about you know uh joan Baez, mm. right um, who is continuing to sing, right? Continuing to be out there on the front lines, but also talking about someone like Beyonce mm. or Alicia Keys who recognize the same thing that Nina Simone recognized in the 60s. Yeah. That they had a broad crossover audience and that they, they had a certain level of cultural currency, right? Yeah. That they could afford to to make these artistic statements of resistance right mm. at pivotal moments not just in a very you know random kind of way or or seeming as if they're answering trends but really effectively engaging in it, these moments of activism right and so i think it's the, the part of our history when we look at these movements it, it that that gets lost mm is the real deliberateness in the role of these women as artists activists right mm -hmm. in all in all forms of that i'm focusing on america but i think you can see that all around the world in these global communities right oh, yeah. mm -hmm. you know and getting past repertory too you know because mm -hmm. you know but I, I do agree with you totally about respect. Like respect mm. is like that song you like, I'm ready to buy, yes. right? I can <laughs> yeah. take on the world, you know, but, but you know, what has happened is, and I've seen, I've been in conversations where people will talk about, say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud. Mm. Or they will talk about Sly Stone's mm. stand or there's a riot going on, but they won't hear they won't hear um, Nina Simone's backlash blues mm. or they won't hear Roberta Flack singing business goes on as usual, mm. talking about what Vietnam is doing. Right. You know, mm. like, or, uh, you know, so, so that they, they fixate on these male artists without realizing that sometimes the doorway that these male artists walk through mm. were doorways that were opened by women absolutely took those chances yeah and said i'm gonna record this song you know nina simone's mississippi goddamn yeah. sets the stage for everything we hear in the late 60s yeah yeah and i don't think that's an overstatement you know because she was willing to take that chance nobody else was taking that chance yeah 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 and 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 in that you know, we've talked about artists as a female author, and I would also say as a black female author, how have, has that been a lonely journey? And, and we discussed before we started this recording that, you know, um, we have this kind of, uh, you know, for women in jazz media, we have this bookcase of female authors, which started because there doesn't seem to be as many female authors out there as there are men um, in the, the historical white male dominated jazz industry so your your journey as a black female author what is to explore there you know what barriers have you faced are you 
Is there a community that you are part of? Has it been a lonely journey? Could, could you talk me through that, your experience of that? It's been a little bit of both. Um, I've benefited from community in that from the very beginning um, of me taking this shift in jazz, I found a community there. Mm. Um, and I found community very early with other with other women mm. so like sherry tucker you know everyone kept telling me when i was a grad student you got to meet sherry tucker and when i finally met sherry tucker it was like meeting like an old friend right and so and so meeting sherry then brought me in the orbit of other women right mm. and so um and so much so that um we created a collective, much like you, you know, like, so Lisa Bark at McGill, um, Dee Spencer, who's a jazz pianist, um, who's out at San Francisco State, Sherry Tucker and myself, you know, we, we created this kind of collective. And then, you know, and then other women kind of came in this, in, in, in some, ex officio ways right mm. but the, the four of us had a collective and we worked together you know and we did some research together but from the jazz point of view I think mm. because you know because of the fact that w there's so few of us right um we kind of gravitated and found each other and mm. surrounded each other right and so you know always invoking each other's names in deliberate ways but but also, you know, cre helping create opportunities for each other. So if there's something someone calls me for and I'm like, mm, no, Lisa Barg would be better for that or Sherry Tucker would be better for that or, you know, Monica O'Connell, you know, Harrison O'Connell would be better for that. Like we are aware of each other. We talk to each other. Um, so we created that network. And I think it, that had a lot to do with the fact that we understood what those women who came before us was doing, how they did that, right? Like they created these network and systems of support that were official and non-official, right? Um, that that enabled them to to kind of, you know, navigate these spaces. So from that point of view, I I've always felt like I had the support I needed. Like I could send stuff to Sherry. Like my preface, mm -hmm. I sent to Sherry Tucker the new preface to the second edition of this book and I was like Sherry what do you think you know am I just being too transparent because you never want to embed yourself into the topic too much but I always regretted the fact that my the first edition of the book ended with her death and mm -hmm. never talked about the continual les legacy. So I always said, if I had a chance to go back, you know, these are some of the things that I would change and I couldn't change everything, you know? So, but Sherry Tucker was that, that person I knew I could call upon, right? So I've always kind of had that. Um, and I've also had, I'm gonna be fair, some men who have surrounded me and supported my work and seen my work for what it was, right? Mm. So. I didn't feel it from that way, but I did feel isolated as a black female musicologist mm, operating okay. in the larger discipline of musicology um, and being the only woman of color on my fat on the faculty in the music department. Now they've been great. Yeah. Fantastic. I mean, I've felt supportive, but there's an isolation that happens there. Right. And so I didn't have a mentor right. in the traditional way that, you know, we sometimes have mentors, right? So I didn't feel like I had someone I could call and say, um, I need to negotiate this. How do mm -hmm. I do this? Or someone saying to me, you know, you need to focus on your personal, your spiritual, your mental energy as much as you are on your scholarship, right? Yeah. Um, so there were times I felt like I was stumbling in the dark and by myself because the black women um, that I knew either were much older than me and they were, you know, full professors or already had, you know, uh, achieved certain things or they were women who were biologically older than me, but professionally behind me. Right. You know? Yeah. 
And so I felt like I was by myself for a long time. And I still feel that way most of the time now, you know, I feel like, and I feel like because I've done the work that I've done, that people automatically think, well, she doesn't need our help. Mm -hmm. She doesn't need assistance. She doesn't need, (laughs) she doesn't need mentorship or whatever, you know? And so, cause you have to take in, this started for me very early. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I mean, I, all of this stuff kind of aligned for me in my late twenties. Like mm-hmm. I, I had my PhD by 27. Wow. You know? yeah. And so that is, that is, it's hard when you're trying to find your, your way as a professional, as well as a young, you know, black woman mm-hmm. in these largely white male spaces and you don't see anyone and either people perceive you as a threat. Yeah. Or they're looking more to you for answers because they don't have them themselves. So, you know, it was it's a unique place to be in. So I always say yes and no. Yeah. The scholarship thing, I did have it. But I think on the professional mentor and, and just the personal mentorship, I didn't yeah. have. And the power of mentors, and I hear, I think, you know, whoever I speak to, or well, women that I speak to, the power of having a mentor, whatever, whether you're a writer or a musician, is significant. Um, and I think, you know, this leads perfectly up. A couple more questions I'm going to ask you, otherwise, um, I will be chatting to you for hours. Um, for, for new writers, I was going to say young writers, but ages I don't think is relevant for, for new writers that need that mentorship, that need that guidance, what, and I know you are a, a significant inspiration to many and a mentor. So what, what kind of guidance or kind of advice would you give to new female authors or, or women that are considering going down this road? How, how can they find mentors? What's the best way to go about it? Have you got any kind of guidance for them? Yeah, I think that's a, a that's a wonderful question. I think this is a million dollar question, right? <laughs> you know, like how do you make it? I think first of all, um, in picking a mentor is doing some observation, doing a period of observation, right? Um, and just seeing how that person you see them interact with other people, or or having some basic conversations with people. I think sometimes we can, we can, you know, we can kind of put the cart before the horse, right? We see mm-hmm. people who are charismatic um, and who exude the sense of success on the front side. But then those people oftentimes, sometimes privately aren't people you want to be around. They're not <laughs> yeah. very nice people. Like they have a public <laughs> and a private persona. I right? hear you. <laughs> and so it means, you know, having doing quiet observation on the side you can get a sense of people you know pre-covid you could go to conferences you could see people or you would hear things you know mm-hmm. people talk a lot on twitter and social media you gotta be careful with that right um but but i think also you know just just trying to get to know people and network and having conversation with people but also you know and and being respectful but not too respectful like I found that there are some people who are now in my circle that were like I was afraid I didn't want to bother you bother me like bother me like (laughs) what does that mean like you know and and so I and so they were like well I didn't I didn't approach you for for years I wanted to but Mm -hmm. I didn't want to bother you and I'm like but how much time did we lose right and so you know and um, so it it is and and getting a sense of people based on their work, looking at what they have produced, looking at you know what seems to be their reputation, right? That can tell you a lot. Doing your own research on a person, right? Like, is this someone I want to be connected with? Is this someone I feel like can give me pathways, right? Um, and and then broaching broaching that gap, you know, introducing yourself, you know. We met through email. You emailed me, right? You know, um, and, and I did, I did some of what you said. I have to say because I say your book book first came upon me through a, a book committee, and then I was like, who, who is this woman? This is this the book is amazing. And then I started kind of sort of, well sort of stalking you in some ways. <laughs> I feel like I was cyber stalking you, but you know, I started researching you, and and literally each page, each video I watched, I was 
inspired with each one. I'm like, this this woman is incredible, uh, you know, and with the videos, you can see, you know, you're not just experienced and knowledgeable. You're a, you, you're a genuinely beautiful human being, you know, and I imagine that the women that you mentor must be um, over the moon and must learn so much from you. It's quite incredible. But but yes, that, that's kind of what I did to get to you. And then I thought, well, I'm going to email you and see how it goes. And, and you replied, and here we are. <laughs> well, you know, I'm always... I'm open. I, I, my live a life where I try to practice and, and this point in my life and my career, mm-hmm. what I'm looking at is how can I be what I did not have? Mm-hmm. See, I can be bitter and say, well, I stumbled and I failed, and there were people who could have helped me and this person didn't help me, but that's what I've chosen not to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's sometimes where I do my own research. Mm-hmm. So I, I sometimes will go into conference sex sessions. You know, if I see somebody on Twitter, that's a young scholar or something and, and I'll kind of follow them. And so I'll reach out to them mm-hmm. and say, Hey, you know, um, impressed by your work or whatever mm-hmm. and it's not that I'm wanting anything from them but um but I am offering myself to them mm-hmm. um because I think that it's important that you know we don't inundate ourselves with a lot of work but it's important that we understand um our importance in this in this legacy in this genealogy of this work so I think you're a young author and there's someone that that you um admire or you're interested in connecting with take that chance Mm -hmm. and just reach out to that person and you might find that that relationship only you know surrounds certain things that you're not going to have this deep meaningful relationship but this is a person you can call and this person can tell you oh no I wouldn't do that Mm. or you know like I've got certain friends that before I send certain emails I say read this email Mm. and tell me is this language like you know you Different fo- people will have different roles in your life, but I think it's it is, um, you know, imperative that you don't use a power dynamic or hierarchy. Yeah, that's also what I don't try to do. Anytime you have someone in a mentor relationship and there's a power hierarchy that's constantly being emphasized, yeah, um, that you need to check that relationship you know um and that's one of the biggest problems which would be another conversation i think in the jazz industry that power that uh, oh, <laughs> oh, yeah. but that's a whole other conversation so oh, i probably yeah. won't go there yeah. but yeah absolutely and i dare say after what you just said you're probably going to get loads of emails uh, once people have <laughs> heard your wonderful word that'd be that right <laughs> um, but my final question uh, which i think thought was appropriate to end on um so mary lou williams could could we end with you just telling us how she has changed your life and the legacy of of how she has changed others Mm. well I think the legacy of her in me is that Mary Lou um, taught me how to be Tammy Kernodal because Mary Lou never tried to be anyone else but herself Um, even in the moments where she was um, not as secure in what she was doing or couldn't understand the things that were happening around her, she never conceded or compromised to be anyone else. Um, and, And she continued to feed her art to a point that the world eventually um, caught up with her. Right. Um, And I think she saw that at the end of her life. I think when Duke University came for her, you know, um, that was in some ways one example of how the world had, um, had caught up with her. But also she taught me the value of service Mm -hmm. and the value of giving as much as you take. Um, you know, she saw her work as being a calling, particularly, you know, after her spiritual conversion and, 
the performance of those works. And, you know, she spent a great deal of time performing only those spiritual pieces, right? Mm -hmm. um, because she was really trying to do the same work as Nina, mm -hmm. the same work as Aretha, you know, in, in, but in, in a different way you know, really trying to speak to social change and, and racial healing and, mm -hmm. and all of that. Um, but, but in that, you know, she saw that she had a calling. And what's ironic is that the people around her, especially her, her uh, manager, was trying to get her to do different things. You know, he was trying to tell her, oh, now's your time to, you know, to, to bank on the rewards of people liking the music you did with Andy Kirk, your early stuff. But she remained committed to that, right? Um, and what that told me was that you need to understand your purpose and the destiny and the calling upon your life. And that the, the fact that sometimes that doesn't align with what the world sees as being part of this, um, this matrix of success, right? This template for success and, and, and whatever success means. And so I think that others can learn from that. Mm -hmm. uh, that 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 in reading her story that that people can understand the power of knowing who you are even in the, in the midst of people who show such genius and skill um but still having such a strong sense of yourself that you're not intimidated by mm -hmm. that right but that you're but you're astute enough to learn from being in those spaces and when you look at that book particularly you know those chapters where she's in New York mm -hmm. and Kansas City mm -hmm. and in Paris right and she's taking in all of that stuff amongst people who we deem as geniuses but was still you mm -hmm. know distinctly Mary Lou that's something we have to to take into account right mm -hmm. the power of knowledge of self and if you know who you are you know your purpose and you know your calling and you are true to that, right? That, um, and you nourish those things that the world will eventually catch up with you. Oh, that's, I'm, I'm speechless. That was such an amazing thing to say. Uh, and uh, a beautiful note to end our conversation on. Um, thank you so, so much. You have been such an inspiration. I could have talked to, talked to you for hours and hours and hours. And so thank you very much for your words. And um, uh, yes, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Women in Jazz Media podcast series on The Bookcase with music from Hannah Horton. <laughs>